You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. We are here today with part three of our exciting discussion and, and unique discussion with Dr. Chris Nikolai, waterfowl scientist for Delta Waterfowl, good friend of mine, a, a, a fantastic waterfowl scientist. This will likely be the, the last of these episodes where we're talking about individual markers and their application to waterfowl science and waterfowl management. The previous two episodes, we had the, the introduction to this overall topic, uh, the history of markers in waterfowl science. On the previous episode, I guess it would be part two, we spoke about banding. I uh, don't think we realized that that entire episode would be dedicated to banding, but Chris, it was. Now we've got more things to discuss. So Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, no, this will be fun. Uh, we're just building off other topics. That's right. And there's a lot that we could expand on. So we're, we're but uh, yeah, hopefully we'll get through the rest of this in this particular episode. And we're going to, we're going to run down a list of different types of markers, some of which will be less common to most of our listeners. Some will have encountered them from harvested birds, but then we're going to conclude this episode with a pretty, uh, a pretty big discussion of the other category that I think a lot of people are going to be familiar with and certainly would get excited about if they harvest a bird that's carrying one of these, and that is radio transmitters. Well, I say radio transmitter. Let me just say transmitters in general because that technology has evolved tremendously over the past several decades and certainly in the past decade. We're going to talk about all of that. So, uh, Chris, let's start out with some of these other maybe more obscure markers. You mentioned one of them on the previous episode. What are they and, and kind of what's their application? The first one we're going to start with, it's web tags. What's going on with those? Uh, what have they been? Why do, we, why do we use them? What are they? And are they still being used? Web tags are neat. Uh, they're little metal staple that has a unique number on it. Uh, they were originally developed as fish fingerling tags uh, where they can put them in the gill gill plate of a fish. But we found, um, uh, boy, I think back in the, the 50s, a guy figured out that, that they'd work really good for marking ducklings. So, yeah, or bird, yeah, ducklings in general, uh, you know, too small to hold a band. Waterfowler born with a pretty small foot compared to shorebirds. You know, like a woodcock, you can put a adult-sized band on him in the nest bowl. You know, shorebirds are born with enormous feet. And boy, I wish we could do that with waterfowl. But yeah, if you want to be able to follow uh, a duckling from its early stages up to when it's big enough to band, web tags are about the best option we have out there. We've tried a couple other things without the best success. And web tags aren't perfect either. You know, they can get ripped out. Uh, you know, handling the duckling to install it can get tricky a little bit. But you know, a lot of these, uh, we put them on when they're still in the egg. And it's pretty cool. When a bird's hatching, it's 
going to break that shell up on the fat end of the egg. And what happens when they're hatching their left foot, it's down by the pointed end, pointed end of the egg, and their right foot's right up by their face uh, when they're hatching. So when they start peeping there, we can reach in with a pair of pliers or the tip of a pencil and pull that right foot out. And the right toe of the right foot is the easiest one to grab. So when we put these in, they're usually in the right webbing of the right foot, and we'll know which egg it comes from. We know the length and width of that egg. We know who its mom was. We knew what position and laying order it's from. And, uh, you know, that bird hatches and off it goes. And hopefully we encounter it again at another time and band it or a hunter gets it and can also report it on the reportband.gov site. And, uh, you know, we can estimate survival and, you know, do goslings from bigger eggs do better than smaller eggs and how many siblings you had? Is your mom old? Is your mom young? And look at a bunch of things like that. A couple of things here on this topic. Uh, let me think where I want to start this, Chris. I guess the first thing that I would say is that, yes, we are still using these. And I I guess it was earlier this year. I, maybe it was last year. These seasons all run together at this point. Jake Sherba, he was a master student studying wood duck ecology and various aspects of, of nesting ecology of wood ducks. And he was using those web tags as part of his project. And he produced a little Facebook video showing the procedure for, for wood ducks. Now, wood ducks are a little bit different. They're in the box. They're easier to kind of contain. And so I think he was actually double marking these birds because, well, dealing with wood ducks and, and their their artificial nest boxes, he was able to to reliably get access to the ducklings once they were fully hatched and you know out out of the eggs. So that was that's what's going on with with that particular project. And and I guess the other thing that I'll say is it emphasizes the importance of hunters uh, when you recover a bird, take a look at those webs uh, on, the, on the webbing of those of those ducks that you harvest. Don't just look at the bands. And these are very or at the legs for the bands. Look at those webs as uh, the, the webbing as well. These are very small little. Is it stainless steel or are they aluminum, Chris? What are they typically? I think they're actually Manel. Um, yeah, they're not. You don't steel is so hard to bend, and that would not be fun to deal with. Uh, with a little duckling. So yeah, they're usually out of Manel, you know, a little more corrosion resistant than, than aluminum. And so make sure you look at the webbing on the feet of the ducks that you harvest. You can report those web tags through the, um, through the same website that you do for your bands, reportband.gov. And that's vi- also valuable information for our use in various studies that, that are using them. The next one that we'll talk about, Chris, is neck collars. This is one that will probably more well be more well known to to people because they've been very prominent in our studies of of goose ecology. These are the plastic neck collars that a lot of people listening to this have probably encountered or have seen somewhere along the way. So, give us the history of neck collars and their application to uh, studies of goose ecology, Chris. Uh, neck collars are you know they're really visible, so it lets us follow birds throughout their lifetimes without having to recapture them and, and read those little numbers on the metal band. And uh, I mean, they've been around a long time, probably 40s, 50s are the first different versions with, you know, some bibs, you know, made out of rubber. And then we started getting some of these PVC or Tarvik type plastics that are that are good to use. But over time, we've learned two things. One, unfortunately, is it impacts the bird survival. And that's what we're trying to always avoid with with marking a bird. We we want it to represent an unmarked bird. So uh, we learned quickly that you know there's some icing events, there's some behavioral 
issues. You know, the birds just fight with it. They're not spending as much time feeding as they should. They tend to get skinnier. Um, and, and so we've, we've had nervous about that. But then secondarily, um, you know, harvest impacts, they're visible. We know ever since we started putting them out, they, they become a trophy for hunters. And so that, that, you know, when they get targeted at too high of a rate, then we get into a additive mortality component here. So it's influencing the demographics of this bird. So, you know, collars aren't gone. People are still using them for studies where survival or harvest rates aren't the focus of the project. You know, I still see some out east for some urban goose projects. Utah uses them for, uh, or at least we're using them very recently for nuisance urban geese. And then we're still using them for Aleutian cackling geese out west, uh, very similar to a Lincoln estimator, um, where we're deriving population status from observations of these collars. But I think for the most part, just due to the natural mortality increase due to using these, that we're not going to use them much anymore. Um, just they're impacting the birds too much. Chris, back in the day when we were using them much more commonly, specifically to understand some of the different migratory paths and winter groupings of these different populations, breeding populations of Canada geese. Do I remember correctly that we used different colors of bands sort of as an accelerated identification? Like each one is uniquely, has a unique alphanumeric code on it, but they were, we were even using colors, right? Of different colored bands to differentiate um, or for, for deployment at different nesting colonies or for different populations. Do I remember that correctly? Yeah, and we, I mean, we did that with my graduate work with Brant too. Um, you know, and it scratches my head a little bit. You know, we know detection rates. Uh, different colors are easier to detect, easier to read. And I bet you in hindsight, a lot of us wish that we would have mixed those colors up a little bit because we have computers with databases. You know, each license plate tells you about it. Um, but yeah, but they were color-coded that way. You know, we had guys in those big snow goose days, you get a, a guy like Dick Kirby's, that, you know, he was driving up and down the flyway or Dan Nyman, you know, reading all these neck collars and going up and down. We'll talk about radios here soon. But, you know, now that we're seeing some of these neat things where geese are jumping flyways, I, it really makes me wonder how those guys dealt with seeing the same collar and recording it and seeing it in crazy different places. You know, did they did they keep it in their data sets? They're like, well, there's no way a Ross goose is going to winter in Kansas one year and winter in California's Central Valley the next year. I'd I'd love to know the history if they, you know, deleted those recites. Ah, someone read that, you know, that seven was actually a two and, you know, we, we'll remove it. And yeah, the, the amount of work that goes into it, you know, I've done the same thing with tarsal bands, but neat data, you know, being able, as we mentioned in the prior episode, just trying to put more dots in between that initial banding opportunity and then when that bird dies and uh, you know neck collars help put a lot of dots in between those two yeah there were a lot of people a lot of research technicians and researchers as you said that spent many a days many a hours traveling up and down roads scanning flocks with spotting scopes and binoculars looking for those looking for those neck collars and just because of their high visibility and and quite frankly because we could that's why they were so uh, so useful from that identification standpoint but definitely as you said came along with some other with some other challenges and so don't see as many of those uh, as those any 
anymore. Let's move on to the next one. It's also a bit uncommon. Probably the vast majority of our listeners would not have encountered one of these. I don't think I have ever encountered one while hunting. I did use them as part of my master's research, and that was uh, this is nasal saddles or nasal discs. And this is, uh, well, let me let you describe this, Chris. What are we talking about when we say nasal saddles or nasal discs? For the most part, they've been worked on or been used on ducks. I know they were used on black brant for a little bit and didn't work out that well. But it's uh, a way to mark a bird and be able to follow it, again, like a neck collar without having to recapture it. And in most cases, they're kind of temporary. We know how to put them on to let them fall off pretty quick. Um, But we also know they probably are coming with some behavioral or survival impacts, you know, that get caught up in submerged aquatic vegetation or, you know, some, you know, passerine studies have showed just color, color marking birds makes them more attractive or least attractive. So I know whenever I've ever published papers with this, that's always questioned people get, well, how did the color of the marker change their behavior? And so it's well known that that happens, but, you know, it is still a really good, you know, especially like your graduate work, you know, good short-term way to follow individuals where you're not interested in a survival component. You're just wanting to follow an individual for a short period of time. And sometimes they might last for a year. Um, but yeah, they're great. Um, you know, a lot of cohort markings been done with them. Like my, Mike Anto is doing a bunch of stuff where they'd get different colors on SCOP uh, with uh, different body weights, you know, during spring migration. It's like, oh, we saw a blue one that arrived, you know, way ahead of a red color or something like that because the blue guys were fat and the red ones were skinny kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, unique situations. You know, we still use them. I know they're still using them on, like, uh, threatened spectacled eiders just to be able to, you know, see the same hen nesting across years because it's hard to see a a tarsal band on a duck, you know, so you got to put something on them that's up above the water. Yeah, and and so just probably what we didn't do is describe exactly what these are, and that, but not surprisingly, it's gonna they will be what they kind of sound like. It's a it's a way it's a visible marker that is attached through the the, the nasal openings on on the bill of a duck. Uh, they but that's why they're not used as often on on geese, with the exception that you noted is because we really don't have to use them, didn't have to use them because of the. Uh, the fact that we could use nasal uh, neck collars on geese can't do that on ducks, so we had to come up with some other way, as you described. And it's either a an aluminum wire, thin aluminum wire, or thin cable to which on either side is attached to some type of plastic um, colored disc that's of a unique shape, and so you could then identify the the duck based on the the combination of that that the color and shape of those discs like yellow triangle, yellow triangle, double yellow triangle or yellow triangle, red Y or whatever. I think we try to devo- try to avoid red colors, but yellow and green and blue and uh, colors of that nature. And so that's, that's what it would be. And then there's other adaptations of that, but it literally is an, an attachment that, that utilizes the openings in their, their nasal openings for, for fixing um, those discs or, or tags. 
So let's move on to another one, wing tags or patagial tags. You don't see this as often anymore, but I was a field assistant for a research study at Delta back in the late 90s on ruddy ducks where the the student used these patagial tags, these kind of vinyl tags uh, to that were attached to the wings to uh, as an individual marker. So tell us a little bit about those. Chris, have you ever done any work with those? No, I've never, never applied them myself. Um, I've seen them on, you know, several different birds, you know, for waterfowl, mainly just swans, actually. Um, definitely have seen them on pelicans. People like condors, for example, they're actually used as a radio attachment method. You know, they'll, I think most condors have two or three radios on them, one on their leg and one on each uh, wing or uh, flight web on the, on their wing. But uh, yeah, for the most part, patagial tags aren't aren't used a whole lot anymore. You know, they they've known that they've really impacted flight before, and also I think they get beaten up pretty good. Um, yeah, I've seen there's they were ducks in like the '70s or '60s, and boy, those things just they uh, get damaged pretty quick. You know, you can't read them because they're just snapping in the wind. Yeah, I don't know of any studies that are that are continuing to use them. But you're right, condors. There certainly are a that that's one of the birds that came to my mind when we were talking about this. You see them very visible in a lot of the pictures of these um, of the condors that are that are studied out west. And so, if people are interested in what they look like, you can probably go search for them on on the web and find some pictures of some condors that have these little web tags, or not web tags, the wing tags, uh, patagial tags, and so to give you an idea of what they are. Chances are you won't encounter those on a duck out in the field, but if you do, it probably also has a band on it, so you can report the band. Uh, so let's see. Chris, there are probably other markers related to the ones that we've discussed, um, you know, these visible markers, ex- externally visible markers that we can use to identify individual birds. They're going to be less common, I think, than some of the ones that we've already talked about. So let's move on to, I guess, our next our, our next and probably final class of markers. And these are going to be ones that allow us to study, to document and study finer scale movements. What you were talking about, have talked about multiple times is we're really interested and have been for a long time in putting more dots on a map at large scales as well as at small scales to understand movement patterns, movement behaviors, why birds are moving from one location to the next if you want to study environmental conditions, habitat conditions, and try to find relationships between those movements or those use patterns and some other landscape or environmental condition. Those are the type of things that we seek to understand by putting all these, quote, additional dots dots on the map. And we can do that through some of the recitings that you've talked about, or we can do that through the application of some remote technologies. And one of these, let's start with, I want to close out with transmitters. So that's the easy way to think about this is a class of, of markers that employs electronic technology that enables us to to identify the location and movements of these birds from a remote, you know, from a remote distance without physically having to see the bird, quite frankly. We can, the signal is emitted from these different devices and we can figure out through various trigonometry and all sorts of other stuff where that bird is and when it's moving around and, and so forth. And so transmitters are going to be a huge part of that. But there's another one here that I want to talk about first because I know you've had some experience with it. You and I both have. You came to Louisiana to 
coach us up on its application. And that's going to be something that's relatively new and it's geolocators. And uh, I guess uh, let's just start with telling us what that is, Chris, the geolocators. What do we mean by that and how do they work? And then we can talk about their application in Waterfowl. And we're getting into all these electronic devices so that they've been around since the 50s, 60s. And the challenge has always been how big are they and how much are they going to mess with the bird? You know, we've mentioned before, we're always trying not to impact the bird. We want it to act like an unmarked bird. So, um, you know, there's lots of different things. We'll talk about geolocators first. We can talk about VHF radios probably, and then we'll end with the GSMs. And um, yeah, the geolocators are actually pretty neat and they're small, they're cheap, uh, and they're weighing one or two grams. You can usually, the really neat thing is you can put them on a leg band. So we've never really had a lot of negative impacts from mounting stuff on legs. It's It's been quite minimal. And um, yeah, they're a neat little device. They're basically a couple hearing aid batteries, a light meter, a clock, and a data stick. And they're small. Um, you know, I'd say they're about the size of, of a kidney bean, if that, and you can get some that are even smaller. And what they are is, uh, I always use an analogy to an old mariner sextant. You know, the most important guy on a wooden boat was the guy that kept the clock perfect or multiple clocks perfect and had a sextant to measure the angle of the sun. And uh, pretty much the same thing. It uh, These geolocators are recording ambient light every five minutes and then recording or every minute, and then every five minutes, they're recording the brightest of those recordings. And you can use, um, you know, the curve of the light to estimate latitude and longitude. And uh, then you get a lot of neat uh, analytical techniques that you can combine multiple days to increase your sample. And it's a little bit more uh, analytical to, to get the locations. Like I just got one a couple weeks ago that was put on a bird about five years ago. And it's like, man, I forgot how to do this, where a lot of these new, like GSMs will talk about, I just look at them and I can see where the bird moved. You actually got to write some computer code to look at these geolocators. And they're really cool. Um, you know, I was using them for some incubation patterns out west on wood ducks, movements and canvas backs. Some of our Canadian friends have used them as a cheap alternative to look at how different subspecies of Canada geese moves so that they can take advantage of some early spring hunts to to hit some temperate breeding geese. And then you were trying to use them, you know, for nesting information on, on uh, model ducks. But yeah, they're cheaper. One of the big drawbacks is you got to get them back. So you only want to use them on birds that, you know, you have high recovery rates on or high recapture rates. Like I'd never put them on scop redheads or pintails you know because we got to band 100 of those to get a single recovery so you know the neat situations they're they're awesome they're dirt cheap uh they give you the information you want yeah the resolution on those locations is a bit more coarse than what we can get from transmitters but as you mentioned the biggest drawback and we even encountered this with the model ducks is that they have to be recovered in order to download the data from the device. It doesn't transmit it anywhere. You have to physically recover it and and, and pull that data uh, from the device. And ducks are harvested at low rates to begin with unless unless you have another an alternative way to recapture these birds. It's going to be pretty pretty challenging to get a large sample of recoveries. We did recover a a few of the model ducks that we deployed and 
you know, model ducks don't move very much, so we necessarily were not using them for movement issues, but rather, as you mentioned, for nesting, uh, nesting ecology, because these ducks are, you know, obscure their legs from the light whenever they're on the nest. We were using that dark signal from that from that data download to to ascertain when ducks were nesting, what that nesting propensity was. So there's a lot of different ways that we can get creative and apply these different technologies. But I think that's probably all we'll say about geolocators, perhaps an opportunity sometime way in the future to have a more detailed discussion about that. But let's move on to transmitters, the one that I think is going to be have us it's going to give us a fair amount to talk about here, particularly the evolution of that technology. Uh, Chris, what's your understanding? I, I don't know the answer to this. What's your understanding of some of the earliest applications of radio transmitters in waterfowl? Yeah, I think some, I was looking this up not that long ago. You know, some of the oldest stuff was, I think, right around with giant Canada geese and, you know, in the 60s trying, you know, birds that were found in Rochester, Minnesota and subsequently getting found that they're they're breeding in the inner lake region of of Manitoba, I think, was some of the earliest stuff. You know, and you're talking big, heavy, bulky things that might have given you 20 locations in their lifetime. But, uh, you know, I think they actually had, like, tubes, you know, stuff that used to be in TVs when you and I were little kids, you know, stuff, electronics that haven't been used in a long time. Yeah, and so we've been trying to figure this out for a long time. Where are individual birds going? How are they moving among different habitat types? When are they using them, whether it be during the day or at night, at different points in the breeding season, trying to follow? I mean, the radio transmitters are used for all sorts of, of reasons, uh, all centered around tracking the the movements, locations of individual birds, finding nest sites. There have been a number of studies that have captured female mallards and female other female ducks whenever they arrive on the breeding grounds. They attach these radio transmitters to them, and then they follow that signal to a nest site to, to actually to then um, mark the ducklings or study nest survive, nest success or nest um nest site selection, all sorts of things that come from knowing where individually marked birds are going. And there there are, man, all sorts of different variations on transmitters back in the day. And, you know, they were, they're backpack transmitters that are attached through various methods. There's also implant transmitters that have been used, actually physically implanted into the abdominal cavity of ducks. Chris, have you ever worked with the implant transmitters on, on any of these birds? Yeah, actually, my first paid duck job was 1993 down in La Crosse, Wisconsin, with the guys that pretty much finalized all that implant surgery techniques. Uh, Carl Korshkin and Kevin Kino, they had a bunch of cool uh, captive mallards and Atlantic eiders and yeah, I mean, yeah, those implants are neat. You know, we still use them a lot. They're pretty much our only alternative for the diving birds, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, yeah, even with the GSMs, you know, we we still implant birds. We'll talk a little bit here as we go through this about the drawbacks of some of these different some of these different types of, of transmitters. And so let's start with the with those early versions. You talked about. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. 
the, the size being a limitation early on. And so we've always relied on the miniaturization of this technology in order to apply them to smaller and smaller species of, of waterfowl or other birds beyond that. But the, the way they worked at that time in the early days is that each of these little transmitters had a battery in them and the circuitry inside uh, would emit a signal that pulsed with a certain frequency and then we had to have a receiver and an antenna to pick up that signal not unlike or I shouldn't say not unlike exactly the way a lot of a lot of people do with their their dogs with their deer hunting or hog hunting they all have their uh, back in the day they would have these transmitters and they would have the receivers and they'd dial into a, a frequency individual a specific frequency for each transmitter and this is what it would sound like chris I this is a little recording that i'm going to try to play here this might give you the heebie-jeebies or it might put a smile on your face so let me see here That's the signal that so, that so many research technicians, scientists today would be familiar with, that repeated beep. You would dial into that signal or that, that frequency, search for that bird with an antenna. Sometimes it's a handheld antenna. Sometimes it's a truck antenna. And then also you would we could fly to find those, right? The higher in altitude we were, the farther away we could de- detect those things. You had a fair bit of experience flying using using aircraft to try to find these transmitted birds, right? Yeah, and like you mentioned, you know, the whole challenge with VHF radios, they're just, with all radios, they're huge. Um, you know, I, I haven't been aware of any solar panels on, you know, rechargeable options until we got into these GSMs. So they're always finite in life. And as you mentioned, you know, you put a whole army of technicians out there, you know, in planes, boats, cars, you know, during the day, at night, you know, and things add up pretty quick. And then you get into the the noise and the data, you know, you played that neat recording there, you know, what you're actually listening for is did it go faster to say that it was dead? Or you'd have to turn your antenna left and right to see where it was the loudest. And then you'd say, okay, it's that direction. And then you'd have to hurry up in the dark and get around 180 degrees and try to get three locations to see where your lines crossed. And, you know, if you were off by one degree, you were wrong. And so VHF radios were awesome. The amount of hours so many of us, and especially, I mean, the generation before us, spent tracking that down um, was awesome. You know, you get into all the old Bobby Cox and Joe Fleska stuff. I mean, God, the amount of hours those guys spent to get some really neat data that we don't have to work that hard anymore. But you think about all the experiences and observations that those technicians miss out on by not having to drive six and eight and 12 hours a day to try to locate these signals, right? Because back in, back in the day, these VHF transmitters, the the range at which you could detect this signal was anywhere, depending on whether it was an implant versus an exterior, uh, a, a backpack transmitter and has an exterior antenna was somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, the range would be like a mile, probably up to, you know, I don't know what, four or five miles on a good day. And then, of course, the when you're in an airplane, you can detect that signal a much longer distance away. But from the ground, yeah, you're limited in exactly how far you can detect that signal. And so you had to do a lot of driving. So, yeah, all the technicians of the day nowadays don't get to drive all, ac- all across the landscape and uh, knock on, well, I guess some of them still get to knock on doors of complete strangers asking if they can access some property, try to go recover a, a mortality, um, a, a dead bird. But yeah, that's 
they don't have that fun opportunity anymore, do they? And you look at that with all this stuff. I mean, I, I have a big kick, you know, with all my times in the Arctic and growing up, you know, like a guy, Dewey Soper, he spent two years of his life looking for the first blue goose nest in the 20s, you know, on sled dog stuff. I mean, now we know where all those birds are. You know, you look at Bobby Cox and Joe Fleskus, how many adventures they probably had in the night, how many different radios could they get before birds started moving to the no-shoot zones and getting stuck and eating horrible fried food at a gas station and who knows what they run into for crime when they're out there. So, yeah, I mean, every generation's like, yeah, you guys get it too easy, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I have a great story from my master's research. We had these radio-marked mallards, and some of them would, would, especially the unpaired males that were not tied to a female that was nesting within our study site, the unpaired males would kind of bugger off and go wander a bit farther. And I had a harder time keeping track of them, these VHF transmitters. And so I would fly occasionally and try to you can cover a much larger area. And so then once you detect a signal that's in some faraway place, we would, I would try to go to that location and try to walk in and vision and as I told Chris Jennings and he makes fun of me for saying this visually observe that bird to see what it's doing there was one particular instance where we went into I think maybe the Saskatchewan River Valley and knocked on the door of the landowner and he happened to own a lot of horses and I was uh I arranged for for my wife. Uh, well, she wasn't my wife at the time. She's not my wife now. But I arranged for Rebecca and I to go onto that on onto that man's property. He accompanied us, but he let us go in with him on horseback. We borrowed his horses. He took us on a horseback ride back into this deep river valley. Uh, we detected the signal but we couldn't get close enough to observe the bird. But those types of experiences we certainly don't get with some of the new technologies, or at least not as often that we'll talk about here, but the, where the data just comes to you from a satellite or from, uh, from some other cellular transmission system. So a lot of fun, exciting stories to be told there, I'm sure, all across the waterfowl science community. Chris, let's, let's talk about, let's say in this evolution of transmitters, the there was another stop along the way. It was brief. It was, um, I guess, the early 2000s when I began to see this um, appear within waterfowl science, waterfowl research, and that is something, the technology we referred to as platform transmitter terminals, PTTs. They were, they were um, location devices, tracking devices that communicated with satellites, and I'm, I'm sure there's some application of these across some aspect of the, of the wildlife community now. I'm not exactly where that is, but there probably is still some role for it. But it was a device that emitted a signal. You couldn't detect it from the receivers or, or the type of the equipment that we were using with VHF, but they were those signals were detected by a series of satellites orbiting the Earth. And they were able to approximate the location of that signal using basically trigonometry or, or a Doppler effect. Um, the signal was received by multiple satellites, and those satellites knew where they were. Then there's some fancy mathematics or trigonometry that could occur that could give us an approximate location from those types of, of um, uh, from that type of technology. That was getting us closer. In terms of an advancement in this technology, it was eliminating the need to put so many technicians out there on the ground, spend so much money and time running across the countryside, fuel for trucks, fuel for, for aircraft, and everything associated with that. 
But that still wasn't exactly what we wanted. We knew that time GPS technology was out there. It was getting smaller. It was getting more accessible. But we couldn't yet apply it to to ducks. But I think it was starting to – we saw it applied through other parts of the wildlife science community, certainly on some of the larger mammals, that the larger individuals that could handle the GPS units at that time. When did we begin to see the miniaturization of GPS technology – to the point that we could begin to incorporate it in in transmitters for or, for, or tracking devices for waterfowl. Those old uh, PTTs, you know, they're pretty cool. And there's still, like you said, there's still applications for them now. Like I think the first time I really heard about them was the mid-90s, you know, especially with spec eiders, you know, spectacled eiders. And uh, similar to today, they're actually superior to the GSMs just due to the remoteness. You know, places without cell phone towers, they're still being used because... Yeah, if you put a GSM on a spectacled eider, I mean, you might get a hit, you know, when they fly by a village, but that's about it. Yeah, just like you said, you know, being able to remove the technicians, the flights, the things like that, where it just shows up on your computer is pretty cool. But, you know, one drawback with those PTTs, you know, in the Argo system was just the inaccuracy of the data. You know, you actually had to go in and score each location. In some instances, you know, 90% of your locations were horrible. You know, their accuracy was 200 kilometers. You know, that's not good. Now, you get a bunch that were good on the right conditions, but small proportion of your data. So, yeah, they were a huge step forward. Uh, you know, being able to, you know, this is where it was such a difference from the VHFs because you could only follow a VHF if you were on, you know, where the bird was. You know, if you're Bobby Cox in Texas following birds and spring migration started in a week, it was up in Saskatchewan or Northwest Territories, you weren't getting that anymore. You know, and those Mike Millers out west were putting on um, PTTs on pintails. All of a sudden, we were getting locations in Siberia and stuff. It was awesome, eye-opening. You know, no way we could do this. That is a great segue to the final part of this conversation, the fascinating, eye-opening observations that we began to get from these technologies that allowed us to track birds over immense continental, multi-continental geographies. PTTs really opened the door for us in that regard, but you identified the limitations of that. But technology continued to move forward, got to the point where we could, GPS receivers could be incorporated into the transmitters, into these these packages, small enough to be deployed on on ducks, again, because the size, the the weight of these things is always a limitation. We try to keep it to, what, under 5% of the body mass, preferably 3%, something like that. Exactly. And so, eventually, we got to the point where we could get some GPS technology into these packages. But what is more is we could incorporate what you referred to as GSM. So I'm going to turn this over to you now, Chris. Talk to us about what that is. Uh, where are we now with this technology? What is it allowing us to do? What are all the other sensors that can be incorporated and are incorporated into these different packages nowadays? GSMs are a device that talks to cell phone towers for data acquisition and reprogramming. So, and for the most part, you know, they also have a solar panel. So a couple neat things here that changed. One is the GPS on them is way more accurate than the Argo system. Um, We don't have to deal with scoring. I mean, we'll get an odd outlier, but for the most part, our locations are dead on, you know, they're within three meters. Uh, Neat thing is we can recharge them on the external units. You know, we still got to do implants for the diving birds because 
putting a backpack on a canvas back is like giving him a life jacket, and he's just buoyant. It's going to hang up on stuff, won't behave normally. So we still got to do implants on those guys. But for these backpack units or neck collars for, for the geese and swans, they got solar panels on them. And what's also neat is we can program these to maximize their data potential and modify it. You know, as mallards move from the prairies, you know, the bright, sunny prairies in the summer to the green tree reservoirs in Arkansas, they can't recharge as good. But what's really cool is we can actually reprogram data acquisition on the fly once the bird's already released with the radio and, and modify it. Um, another neat thing is we can download the data and get almost real-time acquisitions and keep that memory card empty so that, uh, you know, we don't fill the data card with too much data, can dump it, you know, with the cell phone network. And we run into problems like that with snow geese, for example, that get up above all the cell phone technology in the Arctic, and we don't hear from them for months. And we still have occasions where we'll fill these data cards with all that information from the summer, but we're getting better with that. So, Chris, on that point, the way these things are working, when they uh, they have a an onboard sort of memory memory bank, and these things are collecting the data, uh, recording their GPS coordinates on whatever frequency the researcher determines, and then, of course, you, as you mentioned, you can program it to communicate to upload or that those that, that data to the researcher through that cellular network but whenever they get above the outside of cellular range and it, there are places in south louisiana where there's not good cell coverage i can tell you based on some of the work that's been done down down there on model ducks and the, these transmitters or these these units but those devices even when they're outside that cell coverage they're still collecting data. They're still logging those data locations or any other metrics that are being programmed into some of these sensors, storing it in that onboard memory bank, and then it will hang on to that until it gets into cell coverage, into, into cellular, back within range of a cellular network, and then it will upload that data, right? Just to kind of clarify, so we're they're, they're still collecting data, even if they're outside of cellular range. Yep, yep, and this feeds right in, probably the last comment here, you know, just because I think we're getting short on time, and I, I'll get to that in a second here, but, you know, they're also collecting other data, what we call accelerometer data, which is really neat. So it's it's almost like a mercury switch, if you think about it, and what it's doing is it can record data in three different all three axes. So is it going forward and backward? Is it going left and right? Is it going up and down? And we can correlate that uh, with, you know, captive behaviors and be able to tell is a bird resting, is a bird standing up, is a bird grubbing, is a bird in, you know, fast forward migratory flight, et cetera. So it's really cool. And, you know, collecting the data isn't too energy expensive. Um, you know, for each one of these opportunities. I've heard uh, you know, one of my USGS friends out West, Corey, um, you know, basically each burst of data is about one line of, of location data and then maybe 20 lines of this accelerometer data. And that stuff doesn't take up much space where we're burning up a lot of energy is sending that data from the device to a cell phone tower. And you can just nuke batteries doing that. So what's really bad is when you get into one of these areas without cell phone towers and it's just burning energy every day trying to send those out. We actually have ways to turn it off when we know about some of these dark zones. You know, so, you know, a poor spot in Louisiana on a Mexican or model duck could be done. A lot of us with the Arctic geese, you know, once they get above a certain latitude, don't even transmit until you get south of it again. So that's kind of the biggest limitation right now 
is power. It's always been power. Batteries have always been the limitation. So that's what's really cool with these current GSMs that we're using, externals that can recharge is they don't have to go out there with their lifetime energy on board. You know, they can acquire new stuff. And, you know, getting into the new technology, you know, the next step is, you know, where people are talking, you know, some of these new nanotags and uh, Icarus and projects like that is actually having the satellites using information to pull the data off of the transmitters themselves. You know, so the transmitter isn't pushing the energy expensive information, but actually the the big, huge satellites or the cell phone towers are actually burning up their quote unquote, well, higher capacity energy, you know, and pulling the data off. So it'll, it's always cool. You know, 10 years from now, these units that we're raving about now will probably be outdated. It's amazing. I'm not involved in, in, I'm not involved firsthand in any of these projects, GSM, GPS, GSM uh, studies that are ongoing right now, but there are thousands of birds being marked uh, across the across North America now over over the past few years and over the past over the next few years there will be thousands of birds and a lot of our listeners have probably seen some of the maps that are shared by our cooperating researchers showing the movements of these birds large scale movements from breeding grounds to migration areas and wintering areas the timing of those and then then those finer scale movements daily movements and and sub daily movements among different types of habitats, different levels of disturbance. This type of information, especially when we incorporate some of the behavioral data that we can infer from the accelerometry uh, readings, is just opening up an area of of understanding or, or, you know, inquiry and exploration that we've not, that we've imagined for a long time, but we've never really had the data to look at this. And so it's incredibly exciting to see the work that all these people are doing and to, and to, to see the results that are coming in. We're learning about the behaviors of ducks during winter, the patterns that they settle in. It's allowing us to understand winter phytopatry at a scale that we never before have been able to. And those types of things are so exciting to, to think about. And I know there's a ton of things that we could talk about, I would, uh, but for the sake of time here, as we've, we've talked about, we probably need to, to wrap this up and, and want to save some of those discussions for additional guests that are actually in, that are, that are, that are conducting some of those studies, some of the students involved in them. We want to have them on to talk about their research, some of the data that they're collecting, geese, ducks, uh, you name it, it's being conducted in different parts of the country. And I know it's really exciting for people, for hunters and others to, to see the behaviors and the movements of these birds that fascinate us so much. Uh, Chris, you and I could do two or three more of these, but we're not going to right now. <laughs> uh, so anything anything that you wanted to close out with uh, before we before we wrap this up? I had a lot of fun with this and yeah, we could go forever, but yeah, let's give uh, have you give some of these students and active folks a uh, chance to speak about their projects. That'd be, I, I look forward to hearing those as well. I can't thank you enough for joining us here on this episode, uh, Chris, or uh, these three episodes. We have worked together for a number of years. I look forward to working with you on projects going forward. Uh, we work for different organizations, but we're all in it for the same goal, and that's the sustainability of waterfowl populations for our enjoyment. I hope we can find some, I know we can find some some reasons to get you back on to discuss other things, some of the other projects that we're collaborating on. And so, yeah, thank you so much for spending your time with us here, Chris. It's been great and look forward to catching up with you again. 
Yeah, it sounds good. I, I fully agree with all those comments. I, I look forward to our next chance. A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Chris Nikolai, waterfowl scientist for Delta Waterfowl. We greatly appreciate his time and tremendous expertise on this topic. Uh, We also thank our producer, Chris Isaac, for the outstanding job he does on these episodes, getting them out to you. And to you, the listener, we thank you for sticking with us here on all three of these episodes. We thank you for supporting the podcast and for your support and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.